This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. All great leaders, thinkers, artists, athletes, and visionaries share one indelible quality. It enables them to conquer their tempers, to avoid distraction and discover great insights, to achieve happiness and do the right thing. Author Ryan Holiday calls it stillness, to be steady while the world spins around you. And in his new book, Stillness is the Key, Holiday draws on timeless Stoic and Buddhist philosophy to show why slowing down is the secret weapon for those charging ahead. Today, I'm happy to welcome Ryan on the podcast to discuss his latest book, what it's like to be the leading modern proponent of Stoicism, and why many people today misunderstand what it means to be a Stoic. He says ancient Greeks and Romans were every bit as distracted as we are today, and he reveals some of their secrets to ignoring the chaos and finding focus. He also shares how he finds silence and serenity in his own life, and how his daily routine keeps him calm and prepared even on the most hectic of days. He discusses the broader definition of what it means to be still, how TV's Mr. Rogers personified it, how Tiger Woods eventually attained it, and why President Donald Trump is precisely the antithesis of it. We also talk about our mutual love of Winston Churchill, how learning to see the world as an artist sees it helped Churchill keep it together while freeing the world from tyranny, and why Churchill once altered a priceless painting by Peter Paul Rubens. Coming up with Ryan Holiday in just a moment. Ryan Holiday is one of the world's foremost thinkers and writers on ancient philosophy and its place in everyday life. He is a sought-after speaker, strategist, and the author of many best-selling books, including The Obstacle is the Way, Ego is the Enemy, and The Daily Stoic. His books have been translated into over 30 languages and read by over 2 million people worldwide, and now he's out with his latest offering, titled Stillness is the Key. Ryan Holiday, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, Ryan, you are probably the most notable modern proponent of the philosophy of Stoicism. It's been the theme of several of your books, including the most recent one. But I have to say, I feel that a lot of people today probably misunderstand what Stoicism is and perhaps associate Stoicism with joylessness or just being made of stone. So just to lay a little groundwork here, I'm wondering if you can explain what Stoicism is really about. Yeah, so so leading proponent uh, or not, it's certainly not a a crowded field. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, my, my publisher was not, uh, as you can imagine, really excited when I said, "Look, for my next book, I want to write about an obscure school of ancient philosophy." And I, I think that kind of mirrors exactly what you said. People, the word, the sort of lowercase Stoic, right, mm -hmm. means in the English language means. Uh, has no emotions, sort of, it means suppressing, it means denial, right. uh, sort of uh, uh, inability to feel pain. Um, and <laughs> and it happens that although that might be what it means in English, the uppercase Stoic, the philosophy itself is, is a far more robust and comprehensive school in the way that 
Epicureanism doesn't mean mm. likes to eat a lot of food. Right. <laughs> um, so, so, so really at the core, Stoicism is a philosophy that comes from ancient Greece and makes its way through the Roman Empire. Its most famous practitioner is Marcus Aurelius, the emperor. So it should already kind of give you a sense that, oh, this is a philosophy for like real people in the real world. Really, there's there's four virtues in Stoicism, and I, 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 they're kind of hard to disagree with. It's courage, justice, doing the right thing, temperance, moderation, and then finally, wisdom. And, and so at the core, Stoicism is a practical set of exercises or thinking um, that's designed to help one mm-hmm. live those virtues whether you know you were a slave, which was a, a, a common practice in Rome, uh, one of the most famous philosophers in, in Stoicism is a guy named Epictetus who's a slave, or on the other extreme uh, side of the spectrum, you, you end up running the whole show as, as emperor. Another misconception that I think about is this idea that maybe Stoicism is synonymous with masculinity and this classical manly ideal from the Greeks and the Romans. Or maybe it's not a misconception. I don't know. Uh, How how come we don't hear about more women Stoics? I mean, the the truth is we don't really hear about many female philosophers, period. And it's a a bias of the time, uh, of, of history. One of the really interesting parts of of Stoicism is actually at very early on in Stoicism, Musonius Rufus, uh, one of the well-known Stoics, he goes, um, actually, why shouldn't women be taught in philosophy? If philosophy is about human flourishing, this really should have nothing to do with sex or gender. This should be something that anyone is able to pursue. Mm -hmm. So... So when you really read the Stoic text, there's 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 absolutely nothing that says this is only for men, this is only for soldiers, this is only for the sort of so-called masculine virtues. But the reality is, uh, like all of history, it, it was you know deliberately male-centric. Mm-hmm. I what I tend to think about though is like when I really think of the the people who have embodied the the Stoic virtues over history, it's it's hard not to find. You know the 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 women who put up with so much for so long. Um, <laughs> yeah. At, you know, certainly certainly there's nothing more stoic than you know tens of thousands or you know hundreds of thousands of of years of of women doing something. Let's call it child childbirth, going into <laughs> it willingly, knowing you were quite likely to die in the experience. I don't I don't see yeah. men doing anything like that. Yeah, I guess there are a lot more women Stoics than just you know, Lilith from Cheers or something. Yes. Well, I want to talk about this new book. It's titled Stillness is the Key. And I feel like I should clarify that you're you're not just suggesting that everyone go paint themselves silver and stand out on a crate in Central Park. What is your idea no. of stillness? What are you talking about? Yeah, and I'm not I'm not talking about necessarily just that Eastern uh, version of stillness either. We th- we think, oh, stillness is an ashram in India, or mm-hmm. stillness is a a 30 day meditation retreat. These are wonderful things, but I, I'm talking what I what I think is so interesting about this idea of stillness is that it is an Eastern and a Western idea. Marcus Aurelius talks about stillness multiple times. So does Seneca. So does Epictetus. Um, this idea of equanimity of uh, to the to the the Stoics and the Epicureans, there was this idea of apatheia, and then the other word was ataraxia, and basically it describes what we would we would use today, uh, what we would describe now as stillness. It means not being jerked around by your emotions. It means not being jerked around by external forces. It means having that sort of quiet confidence and 
equanimity that allows you to sort of endure and survive and get through chaotic, dysfunctional times, stress, difficulty, pain. So to me, stillness is like, it, it isn't a, a detachment from the world. It's actually a, a, a very urgent and uh, desirable trait to bring into mm -hmm. the world, whether you're uh, the president or you know a single parent. But it also strikes me that stillness is really lacking in our lives today. I mean, every aspect of modern life, from our lack of work-life balance to technology and social media, seem to be just designed to sidetrack us in our pursuit of stillness. Do you think that it was a lot easier to achieve stillness in ancient Greek and Roman times than it is today? Well, one of the stories I, I open the book with is is this story of Seneca right around the, the, the turn of the, the millennium. And he's sitting in uh, an apartment in Rome trying to write. And the, the noises that he's describing in this scene and the language he is using is almost indistinguishable than from the scene I could have described to you from uh, my New York City uh, hotel room this morning. <laughs> really? You know, there's the, yeah, there's police are arresting someone downstairs, and there's a gym, uh, you know, across the way that's making noise, and vendors are shouting <laughs> their wares, and there's traffic, and and he's talking about how you have to get to a place where it doesn't matter what's going on outside you can focus and be clear-headed. And, and one of the, as I was researching and writing about stillness, I, I came across this quote from Blaise Pascal. He says, all of humanity's problems stem from our inability to sit quietly <laughs> in a room alone. Yeah, I, and I love mean, that he, one. He said that 500 years ago. So <laughs> it is a, it's certainly a timeless problem, but I would argue that technology has exacerbated it to a degree that, you know, if you transported an ancient Stoic into... Uh, our lives today, they'd, they'd be like, how can you live like this? <laughs> yeah. What was his secret to shutting out the cacophony and focusing? That's what we're trying. We're, we're trying to build, I think, habits that allow mm -hmm. us to kind of get into that flow state. We're trying to realize that uh, you don't have... I, so, I feel like so much of my frustration, for instance, when I hear noise, let's say my neighbor's making noise. Mm -hmm. If I just go, I can't change this, this is the noise. I got to find a way to work with it. That is a, a far less disruptive attitude than the, I'm going to go confront this person. Why are they always doing this? How do I stop this? I think I need to move. You know, it, it's like we often respond to external noise with internal noise of our own on top of it, right? Mm -hmm. And so what the Stoic is trying to work on is like, how can we, uh, the, the, uh, this interesting word appears in Stoicism all the, all the time, ascent. Not mm -hmm. ascent like climbing a mountain, but ascent like consent, right? Like, I'm, I'm going to go with this, and I'm going to accept it, and I'm going to find a way to use it and work with it. And I think, you know, again, to go back to this Seneca uh, example, what is powerful is we only know about this scene because he so vividly described it and wrote it down and published it, and thousands of years later, it's still true. And so he used huh. that experience to touch something in the, 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 the uh, some timeless element of the human experience. Still, all things being equal, though, a little bit of quiet makes it a lot easier to focus and get things done. Of I wonder, with so much noise pollution from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to bed at night, how, or maybe I should say, where do you personally find silence? 
Look, one of the reasons I, I live in rural Texas is is precisely to limit not just the noise of neighbors and cars and traffic, mm-hmm. but, you know, I think uh, I get invited to do less stuff because people know it's <laughs> far away. And And one of the things that was, for instance, really hard for me when I lived in New York City was I felt guilty not going to that dinner because it was happening seven blocks away. Mm-hmm. And so, <laughs> you know, it, Seneca and the ancients didn't have to deal with the fact that you know, you could get a $79 plane ticket to go anywhere in the United States or that you could teleconference in or that yeah. it only took five minutes. And so, so much of our access to these things is why we feel like we should participate. So I think part of part of that quietude that we're talking about requires the strength to say no. Yeah, just removing yourself from that situation. There's an interesting story in here that kind of relates to this. I was interested to read that Bill Gates apparently has this habit where he shuts out the outside world and goes to a cabin way out in the woods and takes something called a think week once every year. Yes. What does he do during his think week? So he's not disconnected from the world, but he is disconnected from other people. He mm-hmm. and, and look, there's certainly a, uh, an amount of privilege when a billionaire is going off to their cabin in the woods. But <laughs> I, I think it's important to go, oh, he realized that the best use of his time is not another staff meeting. It's not another conference. It's not even showing up at the office every day. But that actually by removing himself, throwing himself into books and academic papers and watching videos and and that he needs to go consume information and think kind of big picture for an extended period of time uh, is really important. I mean, I, I, I think a more relatable example is just a few months ago, I was on vacation with my family playing on the beach with my kids. And the idea for what I think will be my next book came from that moment. I wasn't working. um, And if I hadn't given myself the gift of that time, if I hadn't been willing to say no to work in the short term, I would have been much worse off in the long term. And in just this overflow of information that gets thrown at us, I think it's becoming increasingly more difficult to separate what's important from what's not important. And you talk about this, uh, about the way that military geniuses from Napoleon to Eisenhower actually tried to limit the flow of information to them. That would seem almost counterintuitive that a military general wouldn't want as much data as possible. What are the benefits of limiting information? There's a a famous scene. I I have it in uh, my book, Ego is the Enemy. Eisenhower walks into the office the first day, like the day of his inauguration, and uh, a, a, a man hands him an unopened envelope with a, a memo or something in it. And he goes, never hand me an unopened envelope again. This is why I have staff. And right. that might seem really pretend. That when we hear that now, we say, that sounds like a really old-fashioned, you know, uh, elitist CEO. But his point was, no information, unless it's of the utmost importance, should reach him unless it's been vetted by other people lower in the command who ideally could take care of it mm-hmm. without him having to be involved. Yeah. And so that's transformatively different than where we are now when you have the president of the United States watching television news all the time, where you have <laughs> leaders who are checking what's going on in Twitter in real time. They're consuming information. They tell themselves they're being informed, 
but actually they're just drinking from the same fire hose as everyone else. So Mm -hmm. instead of being able to be reflective, instead of being able to be unemotional, instead of having the essential highlighted from the vast majority of information, which is inessential, they're kind of in the same haze of overwhelm that the rest of us are. And I think that explains some of the problems Mm -hmm. we're dealing with as a society. It's like, if the leader, if the CEO, if the boss, if the parent is not thinking big picture, um, who's doing it? Well, since you brought him up, let's talk about Trump, because he seems like the literal opposite of everything that you preach in this book. He's almost a case study in the lack of stillness. Every insult, no matter how trivial, warrants an immediate knee-jerk response from the most powerful man in the world. He's literally never silent. Uh, And from what I can tell, it hasn't served him very well. Would you agree? Yeah, look, and and I don't even think we have to talk politics. I think, look, let's stipulate there are some legitimate reasons to support a lot of the policies, right? It, mm-hmm. As controversial as that m- viewpoint may be to some people, right. but even even it, just in terms of a, of an effective yeah. leader, you know, he seems to that, shoot himself in the foot every chance he gets. Right, and and then again, let's even put that aside. Does it seem like it's fun to be Donald Trump? Right, yeah. like does it seem no. like he's enjoying? It seems awful, right? That mm-hmm. that lack of stillness. Like when I when I read scenes about Trump, you know, at three in the morning in his bathrobe texting Sean Hannity because he's watching a, a DVR recorded episode of, of of a Fox News show that's designed to provoke and 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 pray to your paranoia and frustrations. And I think about his wife living in a different house, and I think about him being besieged and uh, betrayed by all these people. You go, oh, man, this is not uh, – it's almost Shakespearean how torturous that that sort of uh, – that life must be. Yeah. Yeah, I had his biographer, David K. Johnston, on a while back, and he said, thank God that you're not Donald Trump because <laughs> no one wants to be that miserable. I, I think that's, I think that's right. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Ryan Holiday when we come back in just a minute. If there's something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, BetterHelp Online Counseling can help. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, self-esteem, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment and get help at your own time and at your own pace. Anything you share is confidential, and it's so convenient you can schedule secure video or phone sessions as well as chat and text with your therapist. If for some reason you're not happy with your counselor, though, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Our listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code KICK. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com KICK. Then simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com KICK. Nobody goes into business because they want to collect sales tax for the government but it's something that all businesses need to do. Thankfully, Avalara takes the mystery and pain out of the complex process of managing sales tax. 
Avalara uses the power of the Internet and cloud services to automate the tax compliance process for businesses of all sizes, integrating directly with the accounting, e-commerce, point-of-sale, and marketplace platforms that you're already using. Avalara software automatically calculates the right amount of tax that should be charged for every product in every transaction in real time and files your tax returns wherever and whenever they're due. Selling internationally adds a whole new level of complexity, but Avalara has experts in 15 countries around the world to help you navigate compliance challenges as you grow. I've run a small business for 20 years now. It's a lot to keep up with, and one of the most frustrating parts is figuring out taxes. Sales tax compliance is particularly confusing, especially when you're doing business all over the world and dealing with various sales tax rules in different states or even different countries and the cost of not getting it right can be very, very high. Avalara can save business owners valuable time and energy, and most importantly, give them the peace of mind that everything gets done right the first time. So stop spending valuable time worrying about your sales tax returns, and focus on the things you actually love about running your business. Go to avalara.com kick to learn more about how Avalara can help you. That's A-V-A-L-A-R-A dot com slash kick. Avalara. Tax compliance done right. Today's episode was brought to you by Kronos. Kronos knows that for many organizations, maintaining a modern workforce of hourly, full, or part-time workers can be a challenge. This is especially true for human resources professionals working hard to attract and retain all the best talent. That's why Kronos puts HR, payroll, talent, and timekeeping on a single cloud-based platform. It's one specially designed to give HR professionals supporting a blended workforce a whole new level of confidence. With Kronos, they have everything they need to tackle nearly any human resources challenge and are empowered not just to find and hire the right people, but to engage, motivate, and reward them every step of the way. Learn more about Kronos HR solutions for the modern workforce and the people who support them at kronos.com slash hrswagger. That's kronos.com slash hrswagger. Kronos, workforce innovation that works. Folks, it's no secret that I'm a cigar aficionado. It's one of the simple pleasures in life. Smoking a good cigar is an experience. And when you light up a stogie, you want to know that it's going to be a great experience. How do I know a Cohiba from an Arturo Fuente? What's the difference between a double Corona and a Penatella? Are Cuban cigars really all they're cracked up to be, or is it all hype? Like wine, it can be intimidating to get started, but not with Puro Trader. Puro Trader makes the global cigar marketplace easily accessible right from your laptop or mobile device. Puro Trader is like one of those travel sites that searches the entire web for the best deals, except instead of flights, you're searching for cigars, from everyday cigars for the casual smoker to the rarest of the rare sticks for the collectors. And it's all in a supportive community setting where you can ask questions and read real reviews. Buying cigars and entering the community just got a whole lot easier with Puro Trader. Whether you're on the hunt for a rare, unique cigar or just looking to get started, Puro Trader is the only destination you need to get educated, monitor market trends, and join the conversation. Check out Puro Trader and use the promo code NEWS for a chance to win a day at the Porsche Racing Experience in Los Angeles or Atlanta. That's Puro Trader, 
P-U-R-O-T-R-A-D-E-R.com, promo code NEWS. And now, back to the show. Someone who comes up several times in the book and is kind of enjoying a renaissance right now is, of all people, Mr. Rogers. Um, He's certainly someone who uh, seemed to never get his feathers ruffled. And I think that you say that he even had this stoplight signal on the set from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood that I can remember. uh, And it had a special meaning to it. What what was the message of the stoplight? Yeah, I would urge everyone to sort of think back to the the timeless theme to Mr. Rogers. You remember it's, it's a shot of the neighborhood. The singing starts. And then before you see Mr. Rogers, actually the first sort of image of the shot of the opening sequence is a flashing yellow uh, train signal. It's the slow down, be careful, uh, don't rush in symbol. And and if you really think about what the message of that show is, it's it's not, hey, here's how crayons are made or, you know, Today we're gonna, you know, do this make believe or that. What Mr. Rogers is really teaching kids is just great energy, right? Mm-hmm. He's he's slowed down. He's calm. He's getting them to think about their feelings. He's talking to them about what they're scared about. He's talking to them about. I mean, there's an episode of Mr. Rogers, and and I've started to rewatch them now that I have a young kid. Um, there's also a new version of the show called Daniel Tiger, which is a little more accessible. But uh, I've started. Re- There's an episode about death. There's an episode where one of his goldfish dies, and he right. he does an extended meditation on how life is finite and things die. And this seems like if you think about something harder to talk to squirrely toddlers and 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 little kids about, it would be that. But his energy is so good and he comes at it from such a stillness that that he just glues you in. And, and I think where we don't give Mr. Rogers enough credit is when we compare him to what other people have had to do to keep adult and children inter- entertained on television, right? Like right. When you watch Blue's Clues or Barney, just the, the intensity of, of stimuli that they have to rely on to suck you in is just the opposite of the the real strength of Mr. Rogers, which is his stillness and calmness. Yeah. And didn't he have a quote from the little prince on the wall of his office? What was the significance of that? Yeah, he he, he did. Uh, uh, I, I believe the quote is, um, uh, the things that matter are invisible to the eye, mm-hmm. or it's only, it, it's not with the eyes that one sees, but with the heart. And, mm-hmm. wh- and, and it, it comes from the little prince. And, and the point was like, you don't, appearances can be deceiving. Don't be jerked around by your initial reaction, but slow down and think and really look. And, and you know, the, the really famous thing from Mr. Rogers, which goes viral, unfortunately, all too often these days, every time there's some sort of tragedy. Um, but he talks about something that he learned from his own grandmother, which is like when something bad happens, you can focus on the bad, you can focus on the tragedy, you can focus on what you're scared on, or you can decide, he says, you know, look for the helpers, look for mm-hmm. the firemen right. and the policemen and the, the Good Samaritans. And, 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 and so it's this idea that, oh, we choose how we look at things and that, that often the thing we should be looking at is not what's immediately visible. And it requires a little bit more reflection and perspective to, to see what matters. Mm-hmm. 
And there was something very meditative about the way he would meticulously have this routine every day of changing his outfit from the suit into the cardigan and the yeah. little art projects. In, in fact, I think that you say that part of the key to stillness is to see the world as an artist sees it. And I totally get what you mean because I dabble very badly in watercolor, but I do notice that I have to pick up on the little things that I ordinarily wouldn't notice if I just passed something by or even if I looked at it without the intent of creating some kind of work based on what I'm looking at. You're almost forced to be present, aren't you? Yeah, and and look, a, a transformative event and another sort of uh, uh, resurgent uh, uh, character is is... Winston Churchill discovers painting right. after the second after the First World War and and paints basically for the rest of his life and he found the exact same thing you were talking about and that I try to talk about in the book which is which is that often for very busy ambitious uh you know um type A personalities you're so focused on what's in front of you you're focused on the work you're focused on relationships that you you lose it's almost like your ability to see anything beyond what you're focused on atrophies and so churchill found that painting and he even wrote a book about it called painting as a pastime it forced him to slow down to look at nature um it forced him to develop his his ability to perceive things that ordinarily he would whip right past it forced him to develop a, a love of nature and beauty um and and it forced him i think mostly to go outside and not work for a little bit mm-hmm. and and to have fun, right? And th- that's the wonderful thing about a lot of hobbies is that they're fun. You know, Mr. Rogers swam every day. It was great exercise, but swimming is also fun. And so these hobbies, they, they're not just uh, distractions, but they develop, I think, key virtues uh, that are that, that allow us to have a bit more stillness in the rest of our lives. Yeah, and I wonder if it could be argued that Winston Churchill might not have lived as long as he did if he hadn't taken up painting. Because wasn't kind of the impetus for him getting into the hobby that he had? A, wasn't it right around the time that he had a heart attack? Uh, it, it, it was. was I don't know if he had a heart Maybe attack not. exactly, but after the after the failure of the Gallipoli campaign, he basically has okay. kind of a nervous breakdown. And his sister-in-law says, hey, look, my kids like using this small paint set. Maybe you would have fun with it. And from that point forward, it becomes one of the key sort of hobbies of his life. He, he paints something like 500 paintings in his lifetime. Wow. He's not a good painter, right? Like <laughs> when you look at him, you don't go, this deserves to be in a museum. Yeah. But it does deserve to be in a museum because of what it allowed him to do, which is mm-hmm. lead uh, you know, Britain in its finest hour. And, and actually, after the Casablanca conference, the, the, the conference of the major powers, Winston Churchill drove five hours to paint a picture of uh, an African sunset. Wow. And I just I just love that he he took the stakes could not have been higher. And that's precisely why he was painting. Yeah. H- have you ever been to his home chart well outside of London? I, I have not. But that was it, his other hobby was building was, right, was the, building buildings out of bricks. Right, right. Yeah, I, I went there not long ago. I'd always wanted to go and just never made the trip outside of London to there. And it's just so wonderful. You can really see, because everything is frozen in time. I mean, even cigars sitting in the ashtrays, and you can visit wow. his studio where he was painting. And it's just wonderful, because you really get a chance to inhabit 
his life and see what it was sure. like. It's such a, a may, I really recommend it. And unfortunately, uh, apparently not a lot of Americans actually visit it. It's mostly Brits who go there. Sure. Now, you know, I consider myself a little bit of an armchair Churchillian, but I confess mm-hmm. that you mentioned one anecdote in here that I had never heard before. Is it true that Churchill owned a painting by Peter Paul Rubens and he painted a little mouse into the painting? <laughs> Yeah, so he didn't own the painting. It's oh, okay. in one of the British residences that the, the it'd be like in the equivalent of like a Camp David or something. Um, <laughs> okay. And and he's he's standing there and he believes the painting is incomplete. And yes, he paints a small mouse uh, <laughs> onto the onto the painting, which I think captures just the the sort of joy and silliness of Churchill. Yeah. That's really you know we don't the. the that's not a trait you tended to see in in world leaders then mm-hmm. or now. And I, I think that also contributed to why he lived so long. Uh, yeah. And arguably, he's probably the only person who could have done that and actually increased the value of a Rubens. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> yeah. Well, he is someone who was supremely confident. And you say that confidence is essential to stillness but not ego. In fact, you get yeah. into this toxic mix of ego and something called imposter syndrome. How do those two work together to undermine stillness? Well, I don't think if you've, if you've ever spent time, anyone who's ever spent time with an egotistical person, you see how quickly it is the source of much of their misery. It's, it, it's getting them into trouble constantly. It's causing them to overreach all the time. It makes them sensitive to slights. It's, it makes everything about them, right? Mm-hmm. And then you contrast that with the person who's riddled with self-doubt, right? And, and what's so ironic about it is that oftentimes deeply insecure people and deeply egotistical people are very similar because they True. are obsessed with the idea that everyone is thinking about them. And of course, nobody is thinking about them. They're <laughs> thinking about themselves. And, and so what I, I want to provide people is the idea that, that confidence is the middle ground between those two vices. Mm-hmm. Confidence is a, is, is a sense of where you're strong as well as a sense of where you're weak. Uh, it doesn't regard any of those things as permanent. But it's just a, a kind of an accurate, let's call it reality-based self-perception versus what so many people have, which is they are uh, their own worst enemy or they are their own uh, you know, voice whispering in their ear that they're invincible or infallible or amazing. And this just causes so many mm-hmm. kinds of problems. I think when you really meet, it's like if you were to go into a martial arts studio right now, the highest ranked person would be the stillest, the kindest, right? Uh, the, the, the lowest energy because they don't have anything to prove. The people right. you want to be worried about are the, you know, it's the white belt who thinks, uh, you know, they're, they're better than a white belt. That's who you have to be scared of. <laughs> yeah. And by way of example, uh, you actually contrast Tiger Woods during the period when he was reckless and cheating on his wife and his life completely imploded with his comeback at the PGA tournament a few years later. What changed inside of him during those wilderness years? Yeah, and he really did have some wilderness years. They were they were self-inflicted, certainly. But, you know, when you really look at Tiger Woods' uh, childhood, it's hard not to be very sympathetic. I mean, mm-hmm. his father was, you know, maybe a psychopath. Like, his father was deeply abusive, uh, put him through a psychological and physical ringer um, from about the time he was two years old until he was an adult. And, you know, 
his father, for instance, would often refer to the idea of enough as the E word. And so it shouldn't surprise us that, that you know, this would lead to some insatiability in both his professional and personal life. What I think, what I think Tiger's comeback encourages or, or hopefully inspires people to think about is it's actually possible to win from a better place, right? Mm-hmm. Tiger Woods was, for the majority of his career, uh, exactly what his father wanted to be, to be, which was basically like an assassin. He was like, I want you to have no emotions. I want you to show no mercy. I want you to go in for the kill. It's all about domination. And you contrast that with him winning the Masters this year. And the first, you know, his son is there with him. They embrace it's it's a it's just a totally different place. You he could not have played through those wilderness years if what was driving him was a relentless will to win and dominate because he didn't win or dominate for so long. I think what Tiger has managed to do is is to reorient himself around, you know, some some perhaps uh, better principles and and the right. idea that you can be an amoral success is uh, perhaps true in the short term, but eventually, as we saw with someone like Tiger, it, it, it comes back and, and destroys mm-hmm. what you've built. And along those lines, there's a chapter in here on virtue. Uh, what was the Stoics' definition of virtue? You know, virtue is a, is a word that's got a lot of moral connotations for right. people. It seems stuffy. It seems, you know, it seems very Christian, right? It's... it's uh, and, right. And so people well, it, it's associated natural. with chastity in Victorian times. Yeah. So I think there's some yeah. carryover from that. But but erite uh, actually means like human excellence. So I think to the Stoics, there's there is a, a a moral component, but it's it's about doing right. It's not about avoiding sin, right? So mm-hmm. uh, and and Tiger Woods talked about this. He said, "Look, when you're lying and cheating all the time, your life is not actually fun." And I think, you know, deep down, when you look at some of his behaviors, you, you kind of get the sense that he wanted to get caught. The, 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 I think the problem with doing wrong, with being an unethical person, with not living a life that is virtuous, is that deep down, you almost kind of crave self-destruction because it's, it turns out that it's not as fun as you think. So for the Stoics, I think Marcus Aurelius has a quote, and I think it captures the 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 stoic definition of virtue quite well he says just that you do the right thing the rest doesn't matter mm-hmm. meaning the consequences don't matter whether it's rewarded doesn't matter and and also there's no excuses or rationalizations for why you can't do the right thing and to help us behave more virtuous you actually recommend coming up with epithets to recite or keep in mind when you're coping with a variety of situations in life can you give us a few examples of those epithets and how one can use them? Well, the the I think we can go back to those sort of four virtues of Stoicism. They're, they're not a bad place to start. You know, virtue, or sorry, justice, temperance, uh, courage, and wisdom. But it's almost like, uh, you know, if you're not going to live by the Ten Commandments, what are you going to live by? What are your Ten Commandments? Mm-hmm. You know, what... What are, what are the traits that you want to embody? What are the lines you're going to draw? Because if, if the purpose of this is not just sort of excellence, but also a lack of agony over what to do or not do in certain situations, you kind of need a framework or you need to concretize this stuff. You can't just 
oh, I'll decide in the moment because there's always temptations in the moment mm -hmm. that uh, take you away from virtue. And one thing that sort of undermines virtue and certainly that Tiger Woods came to for a period is desire. And you have a chapter on desire in which you actually talk about the Epicurean's idea of pleasure and desire. And I was intrigued by that because I, I think it's easy to confuse desire slash pleasure with hedonism. Epicurus yes. saw it differently, no? Yeah, yeah. And, and Epicurus was not some monster uh, or depraved lunatic. You know, what, what he was really advocating is sort of a love of the small pleasures. There's this moment, uh, there's a letter we have from Epicurus where Epicurus is like writing this sort of wealthy backer uh, who basically says like, um, you know, I'll give you anything you want. What do you want? And Epicurus requests a small pot of cheese. Um, and so th this was a simple man who took a great deal out of, of pleasure out of a simple life. And I think one of the rules we have from Epicurus is a really good one. It's worth remembering. He goes like, always ask yourself, what will happen if I get the object of my desire? Right? Wow. So, so often we think, oh, it would be great to have sex with this person, or it would be great to become a billionaire. It would be great to be a dictator. But he wants you to think, what would that do to you? What, what, what does that actually look like? And the truth is a lot of the things we desire, because we have experienced getting them before, the reaction's kind of like, meh, you know? Mm -hmm. like, uh, so he wants you to think not about how you feel as you're lusting after something. He wants you to think about how you're going to feel in that refractory period afterwards. Mm -hmm. It's often a little bit regretful or even shameful. And he says, well, can that stop you from wanting it so much? Yeah. And I mean, we can become slaves to our desires. And there's an interesting point sure. that you make in this book. You contrast the three things that Epicurus said wise men should accomplish in their lifetime with the three words that Aristotle used to describe slaves. Can you talk about those? And let's see which three most closely resemble our lives today. Yeah. Yeah. No, like sort of work, pain and food describes, unfortunately, the existence of most people most of the time and mm -hmm. and that's really sad right yeah. we are we we are we turn ourselves into machines and we tell ourselves we're doing it so that in the future we can have enough to live how we want and mm -hmm. the truth is most of what we want or most of how we should actually live is so accessible uh, and so much more within our grasp than uh than we would like to think it yeah. to be. and of course look there's there are many people who are starving and many people going without basic necessities. So it's it's the the point here is not to be glib about that, but it's to say, you know, people have more than uh, people in in this country have more than they've ever had before. But most people are unhappy, and 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 most people are, uh, you know, not living a great life, mm -hmm. and and a, a lot of that is solvable. Yeah, yeah, and it makes me think of a story that you tell in the book about, I guess it was Kurt Vonnegut and Joseph Heller meeting at a mm -hmm. fancy party, and I was wondering if you could tell that story. Yeah, so Heller, who wrote Catch-22, and Vonnegut, right. who wrote Cat's Cradle and Slaughterhouse-Five, are at a party, I believe it's in New York City, it's the house of this billionaire. You, you know, you get invited to these parties, and you're not sure why you're there. You're mostly probably <laughs> to as a, as a status symbol for the host. <laughs> And, and Vonnegut is teasing Heller and he says, you know, I'm sure this billionaire made more money this week than your book will make in its lifetime. And Heller says, ah, but I have something he will never have. And Vonnegut says, what could that possibly be? He says, I have a sense of enough. 
Hmm. And I think that's very powerful to know that you're good and to know that there's no amount of success that will ever make you good is an incredibly powerful place to be. And I think it's important because I think when people hear that, they go, oh, that must have been the end of his career. Heller wrote many, many beautiful books after Catch-22 and was a very successful writer. Um, And and I think what it is is that he came to it from a better place. And I I hope that's where Tiger Woods is today. I hope Mm -hmm. he's competing and winning not from a place of of deep-rooted insecurity, but hopefully from a, a a place of mm-hmm. purity and 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 presence. Yeah, I wonder how do you deal with that. I mean, you must have some nagging sense that your next book has to be as good or better than the last. How do you cope yeah. with that kind of thing? Yeah, no. Look, I'm I'm always doing, 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 and part of that is a compulsion. Part of that is ambition, and I have to, uh, you know, I'm trying to remind myself constantly, like that. This is it. This is wonderful. You should be grateful for it. It mm-hmm. doesn't have to be. Nothing should be a means to an end. It should all be enjoyable and enjoyed um, in the moment for its own sake. And so even in this sort of crazy, you know, period where I'm running around from interview to interview and, you know, I'm trying to go, this is this is it. The, the, you don't need to be anywhere else. You don't need to do anything else. You did it. Enjoy it. And and, and I think one of the things I talk about a, a little bit in the book and I, I try to practice in my life is like, those moments where you feel that way, where it really hits you that life is wonderful, that you don't need anyone or anything to, to be better or different, that you can accept it as it is and, and you can feel good about the sunset that you're looking at or the couch that you're sitting on. These are wonderful moments. These are moments of stillness. I, I, it just strikes me as very sad that they are so rare, yeah. right? Uh, and, and I'm not sure it needs to be that way. And you also talk toward the end of the book about the importance of routine. By way of yes. example, I was wondering if you can walk us through your own routine, maybe not on a day like today when you're running around doing press, but uh, say on a day when you're writing, what is a day in the life of Ryan Holiday like? Well, I actually think it's on a day like this that routine's all the more important, right? So I woke up early. I went for a run. Uh, I ate the same breakfast that I try to always eat wherever I am. Uh, and then I, I tried to write, you know, like I wanted and I wanted to do all this early before the craziness of the day, because the truth is the day is unpredictable, right? Even whether I'm at home or whether I'm doing uh, crazy press. And so I try to front load as much of the success as I can that the, it, it in the part of the day I have the most control over. Mm-hmm. So routine is really, really important for that reason. And then in the afternoon, if I do have time, uh, you know, that's when I might, you know, I'm going to go for a walk or I'm going to go see this person or I'm just going to, you know, sit out on the porch. Like that's where I can take some liberties, but I have that freedom because I, I front loaded the routine at the mm-hmm. beginning. Fantastic advice. Well, Ryan, I really enjoyed the book a lot. Again, folks, it's called Stillness is the Key. Ryan Holiday, thanks so much for talking with me. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks again to Ryan Holiday for coming on the podcast. You can order his new book, Stillness is the Key, on Amazon, Audible, or wherever books are sold. And keep up with Ryan at ryanholiday.net or on Twitter at at Ryan Holiday. Whatever struggles you're facing, from depression and anxiety to trauma and grief, 
BetterHelp can connect you with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient, you can schedule secure video or phone sessions, as well as chat and text with your therapist. And anything you share is completely confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Our listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code KICK. So why not get started? Simply go to betterhelp.com kick and fill out a questionnaire to get matched with a counselor you'll love today. Today's episode is brought to you by Kronos. Kronos provides HR solutions for the modern workforce and the people who support, motivate, and engage them. They put HR, payroll, talent, and timekeeping on a single cloud-based platform. Learn more about Kronos HR, payroll, talent, and time at kronos.com slash hrswagger. That's kronos.com slash hrswagger. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and rate and review us while you're there. Five-star ratings and detailed reviews are one of the best ways for new listeners to discover the show. You can also follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at KickassNewsPod and recommend us to your friends on your social media. For more fun stuff, visit KickassNews.com and I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at KickassNews.com. For now, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kickass News.